It's 8 a.m. on a Monday, time for school. So Sarah Garland is gathering her two kids at the dining room table. My, um, what does U-N-C-L-E spell? Sound it out. The kids are four and six. What does it spell? Un. Un. Uncle. 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 Sarah lives in New York City, and since coronavirus closed schools, she's her children's primary teacher. Mommy. Yeah. Today, can we make a volcano? She's also the executive editor at the Heckinger Report. She oversees the production of dozens of stories on K-12 education each week. Many of the latest stories have been about how school shutdowns have affected the lives of millions of children like her own. I, I mean, everything has changed. From APM Reports, this is Educate. I'm Stephen Smith. So, Sarah, last week we talked with John Marcus about how the coronavirus is affecting colleges and universities. And now we want to talk with you about how it's affecting K-12 education. So um, what have been some of the biggest changes for you in New York City over the past month of school closures and these stay-at-home orders? It's been mostly a disaster, I think, in every you know aspect of our lives here as parents, um, for kids— You know, I do think for some of the youngest kids, you know, it's great to be home with their parents during the day. But beyond that, to assume that much education is happening is a real stretch. Um, You know, parents are really, really stressed out. And then that doesn't even get into what, you know, really vulnerable kids are dealing with right now. And that, I think, is what we've been seeing is that, you know, there are the stressed out parents who are working from home or who have savings and are filing for unemployment. And then there are the kids who, you know, are homeless or were already living in poverty who've like lost this lifeline to school. Right, because often it's a place of stability and, in fact, nutrition. That's where a lot of kids get their their food. Right, exactly. And even that they have regional centers here, so... The kids of uh, healthcare workers and other essential workers are able to go into a physical place during the day while their parents are working, uh, running the subways, um, delivering medical equipment, delivering groceries, that kind of thing. But even there, I was talking to a mom whose um, child is in one of those centers. And, you know, it's really hard for those teachers there. They're overseeing 12 kids to make sure each kid is getting through their assignments online. Um, And the teachers also, I mean, they were trained up in two to three days um, to do remote learning. And, you know, we are reporting, we've been looking at what does it take to do, you know, online learning well. And it takes, you know, at least weeks, if not months and years to really train teachers up and the kind of skills they need to deliver education online uh, well. And especially for younger children. I mean, I just don't, I don't see how that works. And you have uh, two children yourself? Yes, I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, so yeah, I mean, for a four-year-old, the, the learning is play, right? So what, what pre-K is about and even kindergarten, uh, really the point is interacting with your peers, learning how to be in school, uh, using play to learn skills and, and really good teachers are working with them to help direct their play. 
Um, and, you know, we're reporting right now on how parents are not good playmates. <laughs> we're busy. Um, we don't have time or patience to get on the floor for hours at a time. And they're not learning those essential skills of how to get along and share. Um, it's especially hard for only children who don't have a sibling to share with. Um, and, and so they are really missing out. And it's, it's a huge strain on parents dealing with small children who are cooped up inside most of the day. Now, are there any school districts you've found that are doing uh, uh, K-12 education in any particularly novel way, or are they all just sort of faking it? So we have looked, one of the things that we try to do is, is look at what districts, you know, and networks of schools who are already fairly proficient in using technology and doing online education are doing to see if there's lessons there that... You know, the rest of the most districts, which are scrambling to figure this out, are doing, can we learn something from those places um, that have been doing this for a long time and doing it pretty well? And we found, you know, for places that already have one-to-one devices, obviously it was a little bit easier for them because kids already had, you know, a Chromebook or an iPad um, or a laptop that they could work with at home. Teachers were already used to using educational software an app. So there was some element of, you know, it was just, it was slightly easier there. But even in those places, what I think is fascinating is that these districts and experts know that online learning, completely remote education is really mostly a last resort. And that the best kind of technology use in education goes with a really skilled in-person teacher and, and that's what's missing. And so even in these places that absolutely know what they're doing and have teachers who've been trained it for years and how to use technology well and do online learning in the classroom are still struggling because they're missing that key in-person element, which is the relationships with kids, um, you know, peer-to-peer interactions, um, all of that stuff that a great teacher knows how to do and that you just cannot do very well online. So New York City uh, decided to ban the use of the meeting software Zoom. What what happened there? Well, so it's been sort of a larger problem where these Zoom bombers are coming in um, into uh, Zoom rooms. And so I think what happened is that they, you know, the officials here got nervous that that was going to happen to classrooms where you have people coming on, you know, spewing profanities and racism and a classroom of, of second graders, for example. Um, so it made sense in, in a security, from a security standpoint. I think it's been, you know, tragic for kids who are relying on that connection with their teacher, just in an emotional way. So I, I had actually set up Zoom rooms for my kids' two classrooms, um, and they were just really for the kids to get on and see each other. They're completely chaotic. Um, the kids would get on and show the Lego thing they made or the picture they'd drawn to each other. Um, but it was so, I mean, just to see their faces light up, to see each other and talk to each other. Um, and then we had our, you know, these are early childhood classrooms. So we had our teachers get on and they would read them stories. And of course the chaos would immediately end and they were completely wrapped watching their teacher read a story to them. And they've lost that. And, you know, I think that's, it's just really sad for kids. And there's this, you know, added scarier element where one of the trends that we're keeping an eye on is, um, is child welfare. So, Teachers are, are mandated reporters and they're 
Um, they're, you know, one of the main ways that child abuse gets reported. They're watching their kids. They're paying attention. It's their job to alert authorities when they see they think a child's being abused. And those cases are going down. Um, partly because of the closure of schools. So you have teachers who are able to keep an eye on kids, especially the most vulnerable kids who can't do that anymore. And, you know, even that just, you know, once a day connection through a video chat room, um, you know, there are ways to sort of keep an eye on kids and that's gone too. Um, At the same time, you had a lot of kids who weren't checking in. I mean, I think there's, you know, we've had our classroom set up, but there are kids who we haven't seen yet. Um, and we don't know what's going on with those kids. And I don't know that teachers have a great way of, um, keeping track or finding kids who just aren't logging in. Now in Seattle, uh, they nixed online learning because they felt it exacerbated social inequities. What was happening there? Yeah, this has been a really interesting storyline that we're keeping an eye on. This fear that, um, if we can't provide an equitable education to everyone, then we shouldn't provide one at all. It's primarily been focused on kids with disabilities um, who do need a lot, often need a lot of in-person support, um, whether that's occupational therapists, um, speech therapy, you know, other interventions um, that really are best provided in person and that it's, it's, hard, it's not impossible. Um, you can do some of these therapies you know, online, but um, obviously much better when you do them in person. And so the concern in some districts that have just said, you know, we're not going to do anything at all. If we can't, you know, make this fair, then then we're not going to provide an education to anyone. Um, they were worried about lawsuits. Um, I think is one of the reasons that you're seeing that is this liability concern that um, they would be sued if kids with disabilities weren't getting um, the services that they're promised through their IEPs. Um, again, I mean, one of the interesting points people are making is this is pointing out some of the disparities that have been going on for a long time, right? So that this this sort of very quick shift to remote learning really highlights, you know, how much some kids need and how hard it is to provide those when the resources are limited. Some school districts, uh, or at least some people in some school districts have talked about the idea that students who are affected by this uh, might need to repeat the whole year. Is that pretty common and how would that work? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, we, you know, I, we're looking at and thinking about what happens next year. Um, so right now, a lot of schools and parents and teachers are in this immediate crisis, but there's also a lot of educators and experts who are you know, pushing, pushing folks to start thinking ahead. Um, how are we going to deal with the fallout you know, as soon as this summer and next year. And one of the options that I've heard is repeating, just repeating this whole year again for students. Um, probably a less drastic idea would be for teachers to loop with their kids so that um, kids have the same teacher next year. Um, I mean, there's a host of logistical concerns with all of this, obviously, um, not least high school seniors who are already, you know, planning to go to college next fall, potentially. But it is, you know, we're at a point where we're in the middle of the crisis, but thinking about what's going to happen next is really important. And, you know, some of the options are summer school, you know, extending the school year or starting the school year sooner. And then, of course, just regular uh, interventions during the school day and, you know, trying to really 
you know, consider how school days can be organized to help kids catch up who are left really far behind this year. And, and so, you know, there's some experts are talking about, you know, how to, to, how to build time, you know, in the school day next year so that kids who fell behind in reading or getting intervention uh, are thinking about, you know, how can we make sure the curriculum that they're being served is rigorous and is helping them get up to grade level, you know, when they, they are certainly struggling, but also need that challenge uh, to make sure that they can catch up. So given that we're in this sort of huge, massive, uncontrolled experiment with online learning in K-12, what do you think is going to happen to the idea of using more of those technologies going forward? Or is this even a fair test at all? I think that's a, that's a fascinating question. And I'll be really interested to see. I mean, there may be an element of just the trauma around this experience, meaning that we go back to school and we're just so thankful to be in person that we uh, give up on all these technologies. Um, some of us are at that point right now. But I do think that, you know, teachers are getting a crash course, like you said, in, in online education. And they may find that there are tools that make their lives easier. Um, one of the interesting things... I've been thinking about is is that we have a really interesting experiment where at least in a lot of New York City schools, kids are getting a very universal experience. So there are a lot of teachers are using the same videos. So you have kids watching a module on math where everybody's getting the same instruction. And it would be interesting to see if that kind of, um, you know, use of of videos and curriculum where the teacher's job becomes more to support kids who are struggling, um, to help them do the work after that sort of flipped classroom model takes on. But I really think, I mean, I just don't think we know what's going to happen for sure if teachers are going to continue to use these kinds of technologies. They're going to need more training. Uh, The training they've been getting has been pretty spotty. Teachers have been so stoic and are really trying so hard. I mean, we're just hearing this from all over. Very few complaints um, considering and teachers just really, really working hard to do their best. Um, But they do need a lot more training in how to use these technologies well. You know, I think what we may see is that some of these platforms um, and software that are marketing themselves very heavily to schools right now, um, they may get picked up. Um, Right now, a lot of them are free. Um, But if districts uh, like what they see or find that it's a useful way to deliver education, that's something that that we'll want to watch. You know, a lot of these software programs don't have a lot of research to back them up. Um, They're fine in a pinch. Um, I'm using some software that I know doesn't really have a lot of research to back it up. Um, in the classroom, but it sure is great to keep my kids busy while I do conference calls in the afternoon. Um, but it will be interesting to see if, if some of these software programs that don't have much to back them up in, in terms of effectiveness do get picked up. So I think there, next year will be a really interesting year to see if you know some of what we're doing now um, gets picked up for better or for worse. Sarah Garland, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with a look at how there are silver linings coming out of this upheaval in both K-12 and higher education. And if you'd like to share a story about how your K-12 or college experience has changed for you or those you know, let's talk. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast. Or you can send us a note to contact at apmreports.org. And you can find all the reporting we talked about with Sarah Garland on how coronavirus is changing the education landscape at heckingerreport.org. This episode was produced by Alex Baumhart and edited by Chris Julin with mixing by Corey Schreppel. We partner with the Heckinger Report, which is a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.